welcome to the Art Stuff Archive podcast. In this episode, we talk to Emma Campbell. Emma is an artist, activist, and researcher based in Belfast. She's a co-convener of Alliance for Choice and has particularly focused both her activism and solo artwork on abortion rights, with projects including When They Put Their Hands Out Like Scales, which includes journeys, photographing people's journeys to abortion clinics in England, and Women on Waves, collages drawing on historical images and archive photos from the Women on Waves campaign. Emma is also part of the Array Collective, which won the Turner Prize in 2021 for the Druids Ball. Emma's PhD research addresses photography as an activist tool for abortion rights, and she is a research associate in social studies at the University of Ulster. So we discuss Emma's work and how it intertwines with her activism, and look at how the campaign for abortion provision in Northern Ireland has progressed from the lead-up to the 2019 adoption of the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women recommendations, the repeal of criminal sanctions and introduction of legal abortion, and the current state of provision. We also discuss how viewers respond to Emma's work and how that has changed over time, her involvement in the Array Collective and the activist nature of the group, and the experience of being nominated and winning the Turner Prize in 2021. You'll find Emma's website at emmacampbell.co.uk, where you can see some of the work discussed, and the Array Collective at arraystudiosbelfast.com. Uh, the Alliance for Choice website is at allianceforchoice.com. That's number four. All of those links will be in the episode notes. Anyway. You'll find the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. Um, as ever, we welcome feedback on the podcast or other aspects of the project. Um, you can contact us from the website, uh, email contact at leftarchive.ie. So thanks to Emma for uh, taking the time to talk to us and thank you for listening. Thank you, Emma, for joining us uh, and for taking the time. Um, so maybe to begin, you can give us a bit of background about how you became involved in political activism, uh, what drew you into that, and whether, perhaps I suppose, whether your art practice comes in parallel with that or... Okay, so uh, I suppose it's very hard to avoid being political if you were born in the 70s in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember I was I was 19 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, and I remember sitting up late and... My mom and dad, my sister had all gone to bed and I was like a super uh, nerd watching the late night cameras and they were just standing outside the gates. Um, And I was thinking, I wonder, should I get in the car and drive down there? And thinking my mom and dad would probably kill me. But anyway, (laughs) always been incredibly fascinated by politics and even political processes Mm. and the things that go on, uh, I suppose, behind closed doors and in the corridors of power. And I was particularly engaged because there was a women's coalition mm-hmm. and, you know, I didn't know any of them at the time. I, I've come to know, to know some of them since, but um, I find that really fascinating and I find a quite visceral reaction to them from some of my um, elder male relatives and so on. Quite interesting. I was like, what's that? What's this about? Yeah. Um, and then I moved, uh, I did a foundation in, in the art college and I was the welfare officer there. So I was involved in student politics. Um, it was really vibrant student politics there at the time because they had a big central bar that used to be quite famous for raves that, you know, brought both sides together or whatever. Right. But but um, 
like with many new build universities, they've knocked down quite a lot of the communal spaces. It's almost as if they don't want us to organise or something. It's strange. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I went over to Wales to do a documentary photography degree and Paul Seawright is from Belfast and he documented um, work on the Troubles and I suppose he was the connection to go in there. There was no photography degrees in the whole island of Ireland at the time, so... Mm. I was the only person from the north, but there were four or five other people from the south of my class. Um, so I did what all good Irish diaspora do in England and hung about mostly with Irish people, a couple of Scousers <laughs> um, and some Danish people. But uh, yeah, so I, like if you're doing something like documentary photography, I guess you're always interested in those social issues or social justice. Mm. Um and I just, without really thinking about it in the first couple of years, I was always photographing issues that were uh, to do with women, women's employment, um, uh, young women who were excluded from school for various reasons. Um, I did women in nightclub toilets and what they get up to, which I definitely don't think I'd get away with photographing <laughs> now. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of consent forms involved there. <laughs> Uh, and I did portraits of young women who left the North because we were still uh, emigrating at an even higher rate than even in the South at that stage. Mm, so yeah. um, I find all of that really interesting. And women have always been a, a greater margin of people who emigrate from the island of Ireland. So, mm. uh, I you know, and I haven't purposely always gone for like a feminist project or a feminist mm. interest. Um and then when I moved to London, I lived there for over 10 years and I worked for newspapers and for broadcasting and freelance photographer and I did gig photography for a while. So um, and then was a picture editor at a big newspaper. Um, but I suppose I was just frustrated that I wasn't getting to do the stuff that I was interested in. I was always doing cheesy shots for <laughs> <laughs> You know, they were fun, like getting Graham Norton to be naked and hold a glitter ball or right. uh, <laughs> throwing custard over children's presenters or, yeah. uh, uh, you know, photographing on one of the first series of Strictly Come Dancing. But, um, yeah, it definitely wasn't where my politics had imagined. And I was mm -hmm. on I was on the big uh, Iraq uh, rally, big Iraq war one. Um, and I met loads of other photographers I knew there. And there was a there was definitely a sense of hope and a sense of excitement and a sense of this many people haven't been in the streets in such a long time. Mm. But then it achieved absolutely nothing. And mm. I, I wasn't involved in the organizing. I wasn't involved in any of the organizations that were part of that. Um, and so I don't know what went wrong there. Mm. Um, I don't know what the separation from. You know, I, I know that New Labour was trying quite hard to remove itself from the sort of trade union and activist wing and mm. have a different image than the Labour of the 70s. But it was really, really disappointing um, mm. for everybody who was there. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't take much to disenfranchise people, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and I remember <laughs> I remember watching the uh, the student protests at the um at the fee hikes or the fee introduction yeah. even. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, because I worked for a national newspaper, lots of people there, not only did they go to the same, they all went to Ox Oxbridge, they all went to the same college in Oxbridge, they all went to the same school in London before they went to Oxbridge. Yeah. 
And so people like me from the regions, we only got in because we did design or creative work and you can't go to Oxbridge for, for that stuff. So, yeah. you know, it would have been me and someone from Wales and someone from the East End, you know, just people who were more likely to have been to a comprehensive or... yeah. And it was really interesting to me the different reactions whenever those student protests were going on because one of the more you know well-off upper middle class people was I don't understand why they're protesting because everybody just spends their loans on alcohol. I was like, but you know, what about your rent? Oh, my mom and dad bought me a house, and <laughs> I, I remember that moment so clearly because I remember thinking, I'm not the same as these people. Like, yeah, I'm not the same as these people, and nobody I know from home is the same as these people like nobody and um you know I was considered posh in my primary school because we were the only people that didn't live in social housing in my class right um which is laughable now when I think (laughs) when I went over to England you know we were still on a a comfortable but like a housing estate in East Belfast during the troubles and Mm. Uh, it, it firstly made me realize how relative everything is and how relative you always are to everything around you and how relational everything is. Mm. Um, and it also made me realize that people that have a lot and have never struggled in any sense just genuinely don't get it. Like they don't get it and they don't get the struggle and they don't get, um, you know, they've never had to worry about their the beeping of the electric meter or um saving up for bus fares or and it, it sort of reminds me of something I read last week that in in Northern Ireland one of the most stolen items at the minute is Calpol and the next one is nappies mm. and that incredible impact that um an English Tory government that we never get a chance to vote in or out here has such control over yeah. it, like even when we do have a a, a, a devolved assembly um the block grant, as they call it, which should still be called reparations, but anyway, the block grant is um, is not sufficient. It yeah. doesn't cover. It means that we we get the lowest per head for mental health. We get the lowest per head for the arts, particularly. Mm. Um, is is really the lowest. We have the longest waiting lists, and um, yeah, I just, I. I still remember that moment so clearly that I can remember the old man's pub that we were sitting in and I had a half a pint of cider in my hand. And I remember looking over at the Welsh designer, like with my mouth slightly, slightly hanging open yeah. and him thinking like his face was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're you've only just realized. This, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it just really opened my eyes. And uh, I don't think I've ever met uh, super rich people like it who yeah who just Privileged. you understand yeah you, you understand the tory party when you've met super rich english people yeah yeah, yeah. Did you, you felt did you feel you wanted to get out of that environment then at that point or? um like a lot you know a lot of my friends that were there the you know the english people were people who'd been to comprehensives a lot of people from essex um i was living in east london um or people from the midlands in the north again who just you know who went to normal universities and Mm, you know so um but i suppose we had you know we were we were all in london so we all had a certain amount of educational privilege Mm. um but uh as soon as i heard that there was a a master's in photography started in belfast Mm. 
and um the people that it was run by were the documentary people that I knew then I, f- I felt like I'll never be able to afford to do this in London mm-hmm. uh because I couldn't afford to work part-time in London mm-hmm. that's the other thing when you're in the arts you're like how do these people afford to just be an artist all day in London and that's when you you learn about trust funds and yes <laughs> daddy buying people galleries and yeah it becomes clear how and what an uneven playing field it is yeah. Um, and I also find the art scene really uh quite neat. Click, not I don't know if clicky is the right word, but so because London is so huge compared to here, then um people stick to their little cliques and specialisms. Mm. Whereas the thing I loved as soon as I came back to Northern Ireland and uh I sort of went to late night art to get to know people because I'd been away so long. Loads of my friends had also moved away, so I didn't really know anyone. And uh yeah all the sort of genres and art specialisms are all cross-pollinating in a much more interesting way mm. um and there's there's no art market here because there's 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 the money is not there really the there's not enough of a market so um there's a lot of it feels does feel more like a community it feels more like an activist community um you know not everyone but certainly there's a, a huge core element of people in artist-led spaces that are uh, really working with each other and supporting each other. So um, that's probably a large, if that wasn't the case, I, I'm not sure if I would have stayed after the master's, but um, yeah, it, it really made it easier to stick around, even when you get frustrated at the politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And did you feel a pull to come back, to go back to London? after the masters at all or was it oh well well i sort of cheated so um (laughs) (laughs) i sort of cheated because uh my master's project was um re like photographing the journeys that people make going over to england to the clinics for abortions um and so I made loads of journeys over to England by boat, by plane. Anyway, that I've, I'd read that people had gone over, I made it. I went to Birmingham and Manchester, London, anywhere that there was a clinic. Mm. And so I sort of cheated by because I <laughs> my project meant, I mean, I, I, I didn't necessarily do it consciously, but I did get to then stay with friends a fair bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Best of both know, worlds. Yeah. And then I got to know Mara Clark from the Abortion Support Network really well because yeah uh, she was just setting up the abortion support network at that time so they yeah. raised funds for women from the north and south um uh so I, I think i was just it was one of those occasions where i was in the right place doing the right thing at the right time just very lucky yeah and at the time you're uh when you're moving back into belfast was as at that stage you started to get involved with with uh sort of organized uh activist groups like alliance for choice or belfast feminist network or yeah, so Alliance for Choice was really tiny at the time. They just, in 2008, they tried to extend the 67 Act to Northern Ireland before criminal justice was devolved. Okay. And a deal was done with the Labour Party, which meant that it never happened. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about disenfranchisement and disillusionment, like with the Iraq War, that this was a mini version of that. So yeah. um, they felt incredibly, incredibly let down by the Labour Party and by... People like Harriet Harman, who claims to be a feminist, who was one of the reasons it never got to the floor. So um, as far as we know, uh, I think Reddy Horgan's written about this somewhere. 
the apparently the DUP did a deal with the Labour Party because they were looking for votes for an internment piece of legislation on terrorism. So they wanted to um make sure it because it split the Labour Party, so they needed the DUP votes. And the DUP said, we'll vote for it as long as you do nothing about this abortion act. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be an unheard of process anyway. So, no. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think, you know, it was one of those things that wasn't necessarily that public. It was a little bit of mm. back backroom horse mm-hmm. trading. But um, mm. people who were supporting us at the, you know, supporting Northern Ireland at the time were Diana Abbott and Emily Thornbury and... Hmm. Um, modern politics hasn't treated either of them particularly kindly. So mm, that's true. Yeah, it's Very interesting. True. Um, I'm but yeah, put it back it, ten years, fifteen yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it really disheartened lots of people. So, um, I, you know, I wasn't here in two thousand and eight. I moved back two thousand and ten. Mm. But apparently, they were getting rooms full of hundred, two hundred people, and then suddenly it was three people, and you know, and somebody's child. Really reminded. So, um, when I moved back the Belfast Feminist Network had just started up hmm. and uh, I had been involved with some like feminist work in Clapham, which was the nearest kind of group I could find where I was living at the time, but I find it really frustrating and middle class. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I sort of went to a few meetings and just got really frustrated and never got any more involved. And then um, when I came back here, uh, it seemed really much more grassroots and just um, very new and exciting. And um, uh, there was lots happening. Uh, there was um, vigils because of the amount of uh, violence against women or domestic violence had spiked. And mm. um, we had meetings with police. We did lots of direct action uh and i just really felt like a fit in and then they had a night where they were organizing around uh, it was called the carnival of sexual rights and freedom right. it was them and alliance for choice and uh, some lgbt organizations and they had okay. uh comedians and music nights and a play and i just sort of threw myself in because i'd already asked alliance for choice like i'm really i'm thinking of doing this project on abortion access because it mm-hmm. seems wild to me that it's still essentially to all extents and purposes illegal and yet yeah. and people have to travel over and yet it was so easy for my friends to access it in London so yeah. it seems bananas one hour flight can make such a difference so um, I very much got the impression that if I got stuck in as um, a helpful and useful activist then it would be much easier to make work as as part of the group you know mm, um yeah. i i don't i didn't i certainly didn't anticipate that i would become so heavily involved that i would end up being the co-convener but there we have it that's activism uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and i sort of offered you know design skills where i could or uh you know got involved in even policy documents and things um things that I'd never really done before. So uh, that was my baptism of fire into mm. activism was when I started the master's project. And uh, they were also really supportive of the art, mm. even when they openly were like, I don't really understand what you're doing, but um, <laughs> we're happy to support it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, and then I very I had the exhibition in uh, Copper House in 2000 and. 
I can never remember if it's 12 or 13, but I think it was early 2013. And um, an organization called Abortion Rights Campaign had just set up in 2012. And right. uh, Siobhan Clancy, uh, who was one of the founders, steering group members, Mm. um contacted me and said oh i see you're having this exhibition we'd love like i'd love to organize some talks and events around it because it's about abortion would you mind and i was like absolutely like i would love that that would be brilliant so she organized alva smith came and talked there was somebody from the outhouse publishing zana chan came she'd written an article about how women on web had got their um shipping container for abortion in using a a loophole that meant if they described it as an art installation they could get it into international waters and so wow. like it was yeah it was a really interesting night and again i didn't know at the time but um my relationship with women on web would become so that they would invite me over to use their archives for one of the following projects so right. um it was almost like it was written in the stars or something um, yeah yeah but and we had Anne Rossiter over for the opening, and she's in she's in her late seventies now, and uh she's done all sorts. She's put women up. She's collected people from the airport for decades and decades. She's had mm. her phone tapped by um the uh, anti-terrorism police when she had people staying from the north. You know they would phone her. She said that they would phone her and say, "Oh yeah, we see you've got some guests who are, the, you know, the girlfriend or." relation of such and such and she'd be like yep all right <laughs> try not to give anything away God. um and she said you know she even she's so many stories i recorded a couple of interviews with her but she's reluctant for me to do anything with them because mm. she doesn't want to be a, a figurehead or you know just concentrating on one person's actions or whatever but she's a gold mine of yeah. abortion travel stories so yeah. and uh famous people's relatives famous people who were actively doing Fancy work board. to yeah. yeah to stop it happening whose friends and relatives yeah you can imagine so yeah completely. um and and an, a really interesting story I, I think it's actually in her book the um the other diaspora it's called and it's uh i think it might be a mother and daughter who came over from the north and they absolutely couldn't believe that they were stopped by police in heathrow because they're like we're we're protestants we're unionists and you know there's some sort of like you're all patties over here some you know something to that effect mm -hmm. yeah. which i think as well as them having to travel for you know healthcare, they were also shocked yeah. that they weren't you know they expected to be treated the same as english people over there so um and talks a little bit about that in the book and it's just a really um telling vignette i think yeah yeah it's very much mm -hmm. Was just in terms of the exhibition, was that women on waves and when they put out their hands like scales or? Uh, so the the when they put their hands out like scales was the exhibition in the Copper House. And yeah. um, that was the journeys traveling over and the portraits of the activists in mm. or the volunteers in the abortion support network in London. Yeah. And then the project with women on web was a couple, was maybe only two years later, one year later. Um, they invited me to the there's a feminist archive in Amsterdam mm. yeah. which is beautiful and this is how governments can do things if they fund <laughs> libraries and feminist work <laughs> mm. so um so um yeah I was invited 
to the um, feminist archive in Amsterdam mm. and Rebecca. So I had a relationship with Rebecca through Alliance for Choice because um, that's how we got all the pills. Um, and quite often it was more likely that they were going to be um, quarantined by customs in the south. So quite often we would bring them in via the north and we would repackage them and send them as gifts or jewelry or whatever um yeah so we we you know all highly illegal of course at the time and Mm -hmm. so i knew rebecca very well um because sometimes what would happen is uh so mostly they would just post them directly and it would get there and it would be fine but um we had a couple of spares in case someone was really close to the time Mm -hmm. that you can't use them anymore Mm -hmm. or you know you need a different regimen or um if their pills have been intercepted and we needed to get a replacement really quickly um so we had a couple of people rebecca had it all worked out that you can have this many packets in your house before it's uh, an international crime (laughs) (laughs) or you're a smuggler i mean echoes echoes obviously of all the the condom work that had been happening a couple of decades earlier so uh you know is it for personal use whatever so uh and then i had just had my son 2017 mm. fast forward a bit i can't do chronological order so 2017 <laughs> uh i was uh heavily pregnant and it was going to be a big um international women's day in belfast um it's still one of the biggest um in the whole of the uk mm. and it's very grassroots it's all the women's groups all the um, women's community centers from the whole um province right. uh and angela davis was coming oh, well. yeah, i was yeah. i was supposed to welcome her to belfast on behalf of alliance for choice um but my son decided to come two weeks early so he will always be reminded of that on his birthday but also um while they were out on the women's day rally the police raided loads of our activists studios and houses and um looking for pills or they said instruments of abortion in 2017 yeah and i was in hospital and knew that i had stuff in my house and a newborn baby so i had to get uh some people drove from drahada cork somebody from dublin to come up to the north and take them away from us so that people that still had it wouldn't be in any more danger that was a day of fast and amazing solidarity across the yeah. island. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I couldn't get any delivered to my house for about a year and a half after that. It wasn't, a, yeah, nothing, nothing turned up to my house, no matter what I ordered after that. So we had to get new addresses. Um, so they were literally stepping in. Yeah. Yeah. And shocking. yeah, like we were pretty sure they, they knew who most of us were and waited until we were out on the you know i was in the hospital mm-hmm. but the rest were on the rally like and that. yeah yeah so that was it was all ramping up there a young woman then a young woman had been arrested about six months before that in 2016 that was the 19 year old and the mother and daughter had been arrested so like it was it was really heightened tension it was really ramped up um but what it did, and I think this is the mistake that authoritative force always makes, is by pushing down on us even harder, it just demonstrated the 
ridiculousness of the law. It demonstrated how easily anyone could be criminalized. It's it it instead of making a a like a hush hush collective secret. Um, this is something people just work around. It became mm -hmm. an an urgent need for change. Um, and again, right thing, right place, right time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the DUP had helped the Tories with Brexit that nobody mm -hmm. here, well, not the majority here, didn't want. And we were in a really, uh, we ended up in a really unusual circumstance. So there was no government here, mm -hmm. and it was a record breaking three years that we had no government. But we just kept seeing that as an opportunity because we had already put a report into CEDAW, the um, Committee for Ending Discrimination and Violence Against Women as part of the UN. They'd come over and done a secret um, information inquiry gathering mission in 2016. So we knew the report was due any time 2018. There was a Supreme court case in the run there was uh all of Stella Creasy's stuff happening in government which was um she just would find a bill that had anything to do with either Northern Ireland or violence against women and girls and put mm. an amendment on that was abortion in Northern Ireland so you know it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult strategy because sometimes you end up on bills that you don't agree with mm. and that that can be really difficult politically or you're working with maybe the person who once the bill is not somebody you would naturally be politically aligned with. Mm. But, but luckily the bill that it was successful on was the Executive Formation Act. So it was just solely <laughs> about Northern, Northern Ireland and um, trying to sort out what powers civil servants had in lieu of an act, you know, yeah. mm. an act of government. Mm. And um, it was sort of delicious because the DUP then got hoisted by their own petard. Like they effectively a lot <laughs> brought in abortion and uh yeah. e equal marriage by not coming back into power and you know yeah. there's a big pantomime on the day that they were supposed to but yeah we all knew in some ways it was yeah. easier for them to let yeah. westminster do it and then they had no responsibility for it happening <laughs> yeah yeah precisely but we uh so alliance for choice met very mm. odd again odd circumstance where we met and uh, the secretary of state for northern ireland mm. um who was Brandon Lewis at the time. I was wondering which one. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot. We've met a lot of them. Yeah. And uh, he said, it's just really bizarre because we've got Sinn Féin asking the British government to act on equal marriage, on the Language okay. Act, on abortion. And then we've got the DUP asking the British government to not butt in <laughs> and let us rule ourselves. And he said, it's just mind-boggling you know you could just tell he had no idea how we got into this sort of um through the looking glass political situation but um i think something that um has probably hampered progress a lot in the north is political parties don't have to declare their donors yeah because if it and the reason i say that is because if you know we we were all about also whilst doing political and grassroots campaigning and doing creative and arts actions mm -hmm. we would also work we worked really closely with Ulster University in terms of building up an evidence base and there's some you know I have now crossed over into research but right. at the time there were really really good researchers who were happy to do that and so um there was uh like a political attitude survey which showed that 66 percent of DUP voters hmm. supported the decriminalization of abortion. 
supported equal marriage. Mm. They voted for the DUP despite their stance on these issues and not because of them. And so, and we would bring that up all the time and call it a democratic deficit. And I've noticed that the DUP have used that phrase a lot for something that is quite patently not a democratic deficit. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, so I, yeah, so I always, when I, when, whenever we were in, whenever we were in Westminster, it was a devolution campaign or mm. a human rights versus devolution campaign. Mm. Whereas over here, it was a pro-choice campaign because in mm. houses of yeah. parliament, they have a majority pro-choice house and have done for a very long time, Yeah, you know, and a sizable majority. And because it's almost so well established, they're almost a little bit, um, I would say complacent, especially mm. in light of what happened in America. But yeah, it agree. does mean that our argument was um, you've ratified the UN CEDAW committee. They haven't ratified all of them, but they've ratified the mm. one that we were making the inquiry to, and therefore it's your responsibility. Mm. Devolution, you know, you don't get an exemption from human rights because of devolution, and that was yeah. our main argument. Yeah. And that argument wouldn't have worked as well if we had a, had an active assembly, I think. So, yeah. again, it was very, you know, just the stars aligned with those circumstances yeah. and we sort of saw that opportunity and really pushed while we because we thought if we get back if we get um a devolved government back again this mm. will be stopped in its tracks do you think there's a danger of that in the future um so they did try they mm. um put forward a severe fetal anomaly bill mm. um so the law here goes further than it does in the south so up from 12 to 24 weeks here the law provides um for an abortion where continuing with the pregnancy would be a greater health risk than Mm. having the abortion which is always true Mm. so you just need two doctors to sign that off um uh which is in line with world health but basically based on the cedar recommendations Mm -hmm. and world health recommendations but they tried to push back by saying but honestly by making it a bit more like the the irish law so that you had it could only be fatal fetal anomalies and they used quite a disingenuous um campaign with mm. um disabled people as well mm. um despite the fact you know the dup have cut all welfare for disabled people continuously mm. um that parents with disabled children are struggling to even get um, appropriate school places for them at the minute so it was highly disingenuous and it also ignores disabled women who need abortions and all sorts of things um mm. and interestingly even though the Sinn Féin party policy has very tightly aligned to what the law is in the South, although they don't specify number of weeks. Um, so they were really, they were they just abstained the first couple really? of rounds of voting. But there was a, a whole lot of um, vocal pressure on social media and people understood, because of how they paint themselves, especially in the South as a party of human rights and equality and a pro-choice party, People were horrified. I, you know, most people, unless they're abortion nerds like me, don't realize that their policy is not actually that great. And, mm. um, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, there's been historic tensions in them over that for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So we managed uh, when it came to the final day that they voted against this new amendment and the law remained intact. Right. So I don't think they'll try it again because. It was the first ever pro-choice majority vote in Stormont. Mm. 
And if they did it with, and that was before that the new election where mm. Alliance got almost a third of the vote. Um, so I, you know, I think they'd have no chance if they tried it again. Yeah, I don't know what the SDLP are doing because they're still trying to, we think, mop up the sort of conservative vote that left Sinn Féin. But mm-hmm. I think when it came to the last election, um, the SDLP lost out maybe maybe slightly because of that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it would be interesting to see what happens if we get another government up and running. Mm-hmm. Rumours are... <laughs> Rumours are they're going to get back uh, in the summer, but I I don't think they have any choice. But yeah, well, we've got a, a lackluster local elections to get through first, haven't we? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you made a very interesting point there about Westminster, how there is a degree of complacency when one looks at the United States. Now it's a different system, and but there's definitely degrees of yeah. complacency. And what's already happening is because it's happening across the NHS. Mm. And I think this is a really interesting question because it plays into um, the likelihood or not of a United Ireland as well, mm. is that the Tories are purposely underfunding and devaluing the NHS. Yeah. And that's happening with abortion as well. So the organisations that are um, that have contracts to take on that work, so BPAS, MSI, UPAS, all the various. Mm. But that if you're... Um, if you can use NHS services, then you can get your abortion for free. But as we know, people from Ireland still have to pay. People from the north don't have to pay anymore if they have to travel. But um, it's being paid for from an equalities budget or something. But mm. um, the rates that they're giving the organisations to provide that service are far below what are needed. Yeah, and right. so the effect of that, the outcome of that, and it's not known by many people. We just know it because we, we still answer phones to people mm. looking for help every day. And we've started getting calls from England and we noticed this from about six months ago, actually maybe about a year ago, because there's now a two week delay from when you phone up until you get a phone call back for your first telephone consultation. So that's effectively Mm. a two week wait. That's crushing on people. Yeah. Two weeks is a long time to be pregnant when you don't want to be, especially if you're having morning sickness. Um, there's people who are so scared because maybe they're young and they're trying to hide it from their parents or they're in work and they're trying to hide it from their boss. And also ha- having experienced the erroneously named morning sickness. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's a very hard thing to cope with. And especially if you don't, like if you're wanting to be pregnant, then you can rationalize, okay, this is a small price to pay. But if you don't want to be pregnant, it's like torture. So, um, and I, I just don't think enough people know about it uh and i think because they're publicly funded it's partly why the providers are being quiet about it Mm. because they're normally the people that lead the campaigns in Mm. england on abortion access so um it's interesting now we have uh, people here have a three to five day wait and again it's not because of legislation it's because of the provision and funding and yeah logistical yeah. yeah exactly but you know, a lot of the uh, barriers to access in America happen first through mm. bureaucracy and funding and all the trap laws, which yeah. are for people who don't know. There's like small bureaucratic measures like making sure that every one of the corridors in the clinics would fit yeah. a wheeling hospital bed, even though there's no need for a wheeling hospital bed or every doctor or every medical person on the premises must have a license to operate or do surgery when no one needs surgery in that particular clinic. So um, 
they're they're like regulations and small laws that it's like death by a thousand paper cuts mm. essentially mm. um so you know i think we can't be complacent and that it can always happen yeah yeah the flip side to that is the medical technology is so advanced now that mm. activists for the past 10 15 years have been able to provide safe mm. abortions for people mm. up to 13 weeks um and then in we have evidence from countries in uh latin america particular um where they've self-managed abortions from you know right up to 24 26 weeks it's much more difficult but it's much rarer but um i mean that's the flip side is that the organizations mostly working out of the netherlands who are able to provide the medication um mm. are, are doing it worldwide in america We've we've had a, and other activists in the south will 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 say the same thing. So we've had a lot of people contact us from America. Right. In the past year, we have lots of conversations. We've had lots of visiting researchers. We have activist groups asking us about what we do with pills. Mm. Um, so during COVID, we do uh, online workshops on how to use the pills safely. It's mm. it, oh, it's a bit like you would do um, the equivalent for say prep for HIV or um, I always get the name of the drug wrong, um, the uh, rehabilitation drug for if somebody's had an overdose, I forget the name of it, you know, so it's like a harm reduction. Yeah. The more people that know how to use the pills, the better. Um, and over COVID, so we would normally do classes and we get, you know, it's, I would say eight to 10 people really. But when we started doing them online during COVID, we were getting 40 to 80 people and it would be from all over the world because suddenly, oh, wow. Wow. suddenly it became far more urgent and a lot more people's access to um, reproductive health care was in jeopardy. And this yeah. was the solution. So um, it was really fascinating because we hadn't anticipated that. Yeah. Um, mm. And then we, we did a, a doula or like an abortion a company mm. or um, training course. And we had attendees from lots of different places because there's actually not that many abortion doula courses either. And we, yeah. we didn't even realize we were doing anything that particularly radical. We were just hmm. sort of addressing a need that we saw, um, especially because there were doctors here really pushing to have services up and running and the health department was trying to block them, even though we had the law. So, um, you know, in the meantime, while they were doing all that um, political policy posturing and it and the thing that annoyed me the most using the good friday agreement in a really um manipulative and bad faith way mm. so mechanisms that were supposed to protect people's human rights were being used to block yeah. you know we, mm. we we saw it with equal marriage and the um cross-party veto mm. but there's a, there's certain mechanisms in the executive as well that they absolutely utilized against so they were, as somebody described it really well, they were using the letter of the law, but not the spirit of yeah. the law, you know? Yeah. That made me most infuriated. I'm not surprised. In terms <laughs> of that sort of outreach, are you still continuing to do that in terms of yeah, there was a keeping training, it open? Yeah. yeah, there was a training course uh, on Saturday mm. and um, we've done some with Abortion Rights Campaign. Alliance for Choice Dairy have done mm a lot as well so um yeah we try and keep it open um people like to come in person 
So we do some that are wholly in person, some that are hybrid and some that are online. So just, you know, depends. Brilliant. One of the best phone calls that I got, we were having like a debrief meeting of Alliance for Choice Activists. And I got a phone call for someone who needed help with the pills. And it was after decriminalization had happened, but we didn't have services yet. So we were doing this a lot. Mm. And the woman on the phone said, I just, I helped a friend um, phone a news about a year and a half ago. Um, and news were so helpful, but it was illegal then. And we were so frightened. And she said, I can't tell you how much better it feels to phone you and know that we're not going to be arrested. Yeah. Um, and even just that simple thing, I think was, uh yeah i i know it sounds ridiculous but we'd we'd forgotten about that impact we hadn't intended when we were asking for decriminalization it was specifically because we knew that the assembly here might try everything in their power to block it Mm. so if you if you decriminalize us then even if access is blocked we can still use those other means to Mm. help people and that was our sort of baseline i suppose that there's always going to be there's always going to be people who face those like multiple marginalizations you know a lot of mm. people were were answering the phone to at the minute are refugees and asylum seekers in contingency accommodation and yeah. um how could you possibly have legislated for that yeah. without mm-hmm. knowing that we suddenly we're going to have an explosion of hotels that were switching over to this different yeah, we just, you, mm. you, how would you know Ukraine was happening? How would you know? So yeah, yeah. I think decriminalization is the best way around that, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So that that was really pleasing. And there was something that we asked the CEDAW committee when they were over, which was, could we ask for a moratorium on like all arrests or, you know, anything that's happened so far can be. Mm. And I remember the fancy lawyers at the human rights commission and so forth telling us that that wasn't possible and it wasn't legally possible and then it got written into the law <laughs> <laughs> so we were delighted that so that came Perfect. out in CEDAW's recommendations and then we managed to get it written into law um before you uh, yeah yeah, yeah keep and that on file for future things <laughs> like it's it's one of the first examples globally like a lot of people don't use the international human rights mechanisms because mm. they're so long mm. and drawn out mm. They're very dry. They often have no teeth or seem to have no teeth. Mm. But by managing to get it inserted verbatim into the law, which is one of the first times where we think it's the first time it's happened mm. in the world with CEDAW, it means that their rec- the recommendations in the law is based on those minimum human rights standards. And of course, that might change in yeah. 20 years or 50 years. But for now, it's the best possible outcome that we could have hoped for. I mean, it even includes education on uh, gender inequality and rse education um yeah (laughs) they will be harder to manifest but yes uh, they are yeah 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 (laughs) it's it's interesting how the island of ireland north and south northern ireland as well um in some ways seems to be a counter argument against what's been happening else in the world elsewhere in the world and in different ways but you know, as you describe it, and as we've seen, uh, those of us in, in, in the Republic, you know, there seems to be different ways forward. And, and yet there's a degree of people working together and knowledge taken from both side, from both parts of the island. Would you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I know, like, I, I'm often in global spaces where mm. there's activists working in mm. reproductive justice from across the world and... 
they often cite us as you know the island of ireland as the you know inspiration mm. and that's really good news helps people go on and also um in a very real way lots of active logistical and research and ideas solidarity has gone to uh malta gibraltar to the uh the panuelos movement in argentina as well obviously that was a huge win and uh and what a movement as well like given the the yeah. huge vastness of a country like yeah. argentina it was really something to see all those green scarves yeah. um and so that's the hope that people in poland and people in hungary and... yeah in hungary and the united states are really looking at and mm. thinking okay it's possible mm. it's possible yeah it's a yeah it's very satisfying to have one of those rare wins as an activist to enjoy <laughs> isn't it <laughs> yeah i mean it a lot of people were pinching themselves. A lot of people were like, it's never going to happen. We're never mm -hmm. going to get it. So, um, mm -hmm. but I also remember there was a big free music gig in Belfast the night of the repeal count. Mm. And, oh. I, and I just remember loads of people going about in the repeal or in our, in our t-shirts. And right. I remember thinking, I don't know any of these people. This is brilliant. <laughs> Because normally, yeah. you know, normally I would know, oh, that's such and such. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was brilliant. And then the breeders played and one of them or two of them came on with T-shirts on as well. Mm. It was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I remember I got a text from Ara, who was in the headquarters for the Yes campaign, but was also in London Irish abortion rights. So she mm. was the researcher who worked for Stella, who like was the... Um, abortion rights campaign foot in the door essentially mm. and uh she was like the polls have come in and it looks fantastic and i remember thinking i don't want to get excited yet i think one in the morning we had the positive press release and the negative press release so yeah. um yeah happy yeah. happy that it went the way it did again hideous that anybody had to vote for human rights but mm -hmm. um it, it was really interesting because the immediate reaction from um lots of English politicians was we need a referendum in Northern Ireland we were like well first of all the only thing you could have is a plebiscite and it wouldn't be binding and right. it doesn't work and we don't <laughs> yeah. have a constitution and blah 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 blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're like but we appreciate your solidarity yes. <laughs> yeah. but you actually just have the power to change the law in Westminster so just yeah. do it um, and yeah I even remember like when we were trying to frame initially before we had buy-in from all communities trying to frame the Westminster involvement as look, this is a this is an 1861 this is a colonial law this is the same law mm. that's in Sierra Leone and it was in Australia mm. and Canada and anywhere that basically it it's the bootprint of um criminalizing sexuality that's still felt and it's mm. it's the law that still outlaws um homosexual relations in most of the Caribbean and yeah, yeah and uh that's not somewhere i never remember but yeah the, the law still has a really damaging effect yeah. and is effectively still killing people across the world so we were like we are asking the british government to remove mm -hmm. their colonial law from northern ireland and that was the best way we could think of it but then Sinn Féin, once they bought in then it it definitely made it a lot easier right because you're always in danger in northern ireland of an issue becoming sectarianized mm -hmm. So it wasn't sectarianized, mm. although Gavin Robinson, a DUP 
um, minister in Westminster tried to say that all oh, these rights issues are they're like nationalist issues. <laughs> so immediately we got on the phone to any um uh sort of you know well-known Protestant activists mm. or uh or even unionists that we knew and were like mm. please say that you're a prod for equality. <laughs> so we yeah. had, <laughs> we had li- you had little like 30 second vignettes from a number of people the next day because they were like, you know, stop sectarianizing things that aren't yes. sectarian. Yeah. 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 There seems to be an upwelling of um women activists um in unionism and loyalism around that time who certainly nailed their colours to the mass in that respect. Uh yeah. I can think of a few blogs and 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 so forth. Yeah, there was, um, I actually don't know who it is, but, um, and she's anonymous for safety reasons, but her mm. loyalist voice, one That's of them. That's right, her loyalist voice for one, yeah. Uh, and there's a couple of other commentators, um, and then obviously Dawn Purvis has, yeah. has been yeah. pro-choice for a long time, but yeah. she's she's from the David Irvine School of Progressive yeah. Unionism, so yeah, that was a big loss, I think, when he died. Huge. For that, for that whole community, that's East Belfast is where I grew up, and it was definitely yeah. uh, a shame because it sort of it left a chink open that the paramilitaries just sort of went back into again, which is a mm. shame. Well, the the very first um, out pro-choice <laughs> MLA was Anna Lo, who's a um, yeah. mm. Chinese, uh, you know, yeah, Chinese. Yeah immigrant and she was told it would be political death if she was open about it but um as soon as she was open about it then mm. uh kate nickel who's now um uh, who's now got quite a high profile in the alliance party and was this, was the mayor of belfast for a while mm. she was worked in her constituency and she said they just were always flooded with calls from people because really? they knew anna was the pro-choice person so they would get loads of people phoning asking for help or what do I do? I mean, they'd also get loads of hate mail, which could be racist, mm. racist yeah. or antitrust. So take yeah. your pick. <laughs> um, but I do find it interesting that, um, you know, there's there's I, I feel like there's similarities with having um, Halapanavar who felt more comfortable than a, you know, than a native Irish person mm. talking about the experience because they didn't have the same um, cultural pressure to stay quiet. Yeah. Mm. And I, yeah, I do think there's an element of that, you know, abortion mm. has been legal, problematic in other ways, but legal in China for a long time. Yeah. Um, in fact, some, sometimes the medicines that we get are from China. Right. Um, but uh, I do feel like that sort of culturally impressed silence that wasn't there for them in the same way as what maybe helped them be out and mm. you know mm. open open about it. But even even within array, there are people who, even though they are absolutely pro-choice and mm. are supportive of or are LGBT people, mm. there was a there was a different tension whenever the work was about to open in Belfast because people's families were going to see it. Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, because it was so accessible, it's now in Belfast. It wasn't just going to be their, their mums mm. and dads. And, and you know, for some people, that was already a tricky conversation. Oh yeah. Uh, but you know, extended extended family. <laughs> yeah. 
and so That's people, hard on people yeah people were really nervous but it, i mean it, it turned out okay in the end something you said earlier really struck me you were saying like about work that you've done it's sometimes people might not understand the work you make and do you find that an issue for you or do you tend to or, or is that something that you would take into account at all yeah I, i'm just curious like about the responses you have on the part of people to your work and also in terms of your own sense of communicating something if, i mean some art people don't want to communicate at all it's just it is what it is and yeah i mean i used to joke that i when i was at an art conference or an art event i'd explain abortion and when i was at an abortion event i would explain art right. <laughs> <laughs> um uh but you know i think even in the last 10 years people are a lot more visually literate like we have to be society now relies on visual communication mm. so much um i get really annoyed when people are like oh is photography dead because everybody has a camera in their pocket but you know that's the same as what they said about the printed press and language and it just made you know yes there are more terrible books but there's also more good books as good well. books. Yeah. <laughs> and more people who can understand it and more people who are literate and I feel the same way about images mm. um, and people I think it makes people more aware of the editing process that can happen as well because now people can edit on their phones so people are less I think less blinded by um, tech yeah by fake images or whatever um, but I think for some things people find it really easy to understand some people find it really easy to understand and some people need me to take them through the work. Yeah. I think um, with the, I'm trying to remember, the Collages Project, which was Women on Web, mm. um, I was trying to talk about the colonial influences. I was trying to talk about all the different international networks that were, you know, that you needed to have in order to have an abortion in Ireland. Yeah. And that was harder to explain. And those collages, I mean, if people aren't used to collage, it's a sort of like it can be used really well and it's used for political art a lot. But mm. um, I noticed that people involved in the activism got it really quickly. Yeah. And people yeah. knew the symbols really quickly. And other people I maybe had to explain a bit, a bit more. Um, with the, the butterfly portraits, I had done a couple of experiments on myself because I thought it's really hard to explain um verbally what mm. you're talking about or what it might look like but if i had a couple to show people then they would um and when people saw them they people would then start approaching me and asking me or emailing me and asking if they could be made into an abortion the, butterfly you know activists yeah um and it was it was some somebody else put it in the parents for choice facebook thread at one point and then loads of people contacted me from there and then people started using it as their avatar on social media and it sort of took on a little life of its own. And I loved it about, I, you know, that's what yeah. I loved about that. And so people responded to it in a much more um, visceral way, I think. Um, it, sounds, it sounds almost organic. Yeah. And so it was, it was very a participatory sort of dialogical sort of process mm -hmm. because um. Now, most people I photographed them, but then near the end when it was getting like, you know, five or six people a day, mm. um, I would get them to send me a selfie and then I'd get them to send me images of them at a protest or a march or 
or if they didn't do that some other way that they were involved in activism and i would turn that that into the background mm. um and sometimes i would send them they're like oh that looks a bit weird actually can i send you this picture instead yeah um so it became a backward and forward process so i yeah. think people really owned the images but on top of that like if you think about anti-choice and pro-choice rallies for instance hmm. um, especially right. in the early days lots of the pro-choice placards are full of witty sayings or information or stats hmm. very few images hmm. the anti-choice people had the you know they really got the held ground there in terms of what was yeah. available in the sort of visual terrain so um what space they took up and how um aggressive that was as well in terms of really misleading uh, abortion images or like a little fetus floating in space no yeah. indication of it being <laughs> inside yeah. a, a human body i remember asking one anti-choice activist if that was real life size and she said yeah of course and i was like do you understand how big the human body would have to be if that was life size um i was like you do realize it's only the size of my fingernail whatever so like she genuinely was shocked when i told her that i remember that conversation but um i i feel like it's another reason those portraits were really taken on board because it, you know it wasn't the only one but there was very mm. very very little to show yeah. positive images yeah about abortion um and i'm not you know I didn't ask people whether they'd had an abortion or not to be part of it, but a lot of people who are activists are activists because either they or someone very close to them had to access or try to access an abortion. Yeah. Um, and I was also part of the, do you remember the Exile Project? It was set up by a couple of writers, um, Julie Morrissey, and I can't remember the other woman's name. But oh, that's ringing a bell, yeah. They yeah. photographed, it was just photographs of people in Ireland who'd had abortions, North and South. Yes, yeah. And no stories with them, but and they always showed them as a group. Hmm. So it was never anybody alone. And um, I photographed all the ones that were from the north. Right. And the people were allowed to choose which image was used of them. And it was really interesting that that was happening around the same time as I had started the passport images. Right. Uh, yeah, it just felt like we were both, you know, whatever the collective subconscious was happening at the time. The we, yeah, we were thinking of similar so yeah it was interesting um did, did yeah. you have a sense when that project was coming to an end i mean do, i mean did you have a th something in your head which said right this is what it, i mean this actually applies i think to all your work but i mean do you do you have a sense of okay this is now sufficient or is there a part of you that is like you're saying about like for instance the butterflies and how they've achieved a life of their own and there's almost like i'm, I'm thinking as you're saying that maybe you could go back and do more in some yeah. ways with the I way mean, it's gone but... i think i spoke about the butterflies at a reproductive justice conference in cambridge last week hmm. and the latin american contingent there is a big latin american contingent we're very very interested in them mm -hmm. um and i think uh i want to do something i've made a tiny little mini photo book out of them which will be down at the dublin book photo book fair soon but um people still ask me so people still ask me to make them into butterflies and I've sort of collected them into a little bunch of uh, in an email folder and think I'm going to do them all at once. I'm going to do that, but I still haven't done it yet. <laughs> right. yeah. Um, For me, like 
they were an ongoing thing and I was always trying to display them in a way that would somehow reflect the mm. political situation. So mm. when I first displayed them, they were in those old Victorian entomology boxes. So mm. just by accident of the archive research I was doing for my PhD, I found that the first ever colour photograph was made in 1861, which is the yeah. same year as the Offences Against the Person Act. And I was like, this, I have to mm -hmm. use this somehow. And it looked looked like a little tartan rosette ribbon that also sort of looked like a butterfly. So that's when the project started. I'd already thought about using passport images for something, but I hadn't thought what yet. And so that's sort mm. of what made the idea more clear. Yeah. Um, so at first they were in these really old fashioned, dark mm. um, entomology boxes that had the pins through all their faces. Um, and then as as it was getting closer and closer maybe repeal had happened or was about to happen mm. i would have them in white boxes a bit pressure lighter pins and one of the boxes all the butterflies are actually outside of the frame and escaping and out on the wall Lovely. and stuff yeah so the run-up to the uh the day of decriminalization in northern ireland which was the 21st of october mm. um and if the government hadn't formed by midnight then the law was passed the sunset clause mm. So um, at about 10 o'clock at night, they tried to reform and SDLP walked out and they didn't have a speaker and it wasn't possible. It's yeah. a bit of a pantomime, really. I don't think they really had any intention. But um, so I enlisted some helpers, some array people and some other people, and we printed head size versions of them mm. and we, we pasted them over the city. And so... I remember thinking, if I don't do anything else with these butterflies, I want to make sure that people see them on the street. Yeah. That it's positive, that it looks like, and also it's a little bit about saying, you know, a, a, a politician made this happen at the end, but it wouldn't mm. have happened without all of these people on the wall. Or, yeah. you know, that it's about a movement. It's about a whole bunch of people working together. And there were international people in there as well. So there's people from, uh mexico there's people from ghana and zambia there's people from kenya there's people from uh thailand america poland so yeah we've got a whole there's a couple of different latin american countries represented there so and then loads of That's irish amazing. people so yeah so i think like yeah it, it felt like I, ne I needed to do that and then once that happened i was like I don't know what else to do <laughs> so then I went to the tiny tiny little books and I think uh like quite a lot of people have asked if they can have those yeah um so yeah so I don't really know what I, I'd like because I've done all the different projects around abortion I'd like to sort of put them together somehow mm. um but I don't know how yet so yeah <laughs> that's a huge challenge well i don't know it's a big, huge challenge it's a fascinating challenge yeah because then because i've also done just portraits at rallies and things that i just haven't really done anything with yeah. or i've used them for lines for choice or um yeah so i need i need a, an editor I, th I think i need an right. editor and a <laughs> i feel quite strongly about and even in array we only make work that is about something that directly impacts us mm -hmm. um just because like we quite often get people who come to us and ask us to do things and so we're just very careful about making sure 
it's you know it's authentic first mm -hmm. of all mm -hmm. and that we do genuinely care about it and that we can engage in a in a full and deep way mm. um i mean sometimes people just want us to turn up at um rallies that's okay too <laughs> as long as it's something that we would have gone to you know anyway yeah so there's there's sort of there's that but one of the reasons like one of the reasons who's in the collective is in the collective is not because yeah there was a really interesting discussion the other night amongst different art groups in belfast mm. and we had a collective visiting from indonesia and people were saying well have you ever thought about asking this art group to be involved with you this art group but really the people who are in the collective we didn't like aren't selected or didn't ask to join because of their art mm. they're there because we kept seeing each other at the same marches all the time you know, right. the, okay. the six yeah. studio the six studio members evolved over time to be people who we already knew each other really well mm. and we had a lot of political overlaps in our work or an idea overlap mm. in our work but we were also people that we knew we would see at an abortion march at an lgbt rally at a climate rally at the um you know stop the gentrification stuff like we would have all and so that's how it became quite easy to decide because it's the six studio members plus mm. a couple of other people yeah and there was some people who've just been involved with the Ray for a long time, like Grace and Jane, who aren't in the studios anymore, but like are just feel like a part of it. Yeah. Um, and also would always be at, you know, at Pride or whatever with us. Um mm. and yeah, so that it it sort of feels like maybe the other art groups in the room hadn't quite got that yet, hadn't mm. quite realized, you know, that we don't we didn't just invite people because we're like, Oh, we really like your art. It, it in a funny way it was secondary. Right. Like, okay. Yeah. So, uh, and that it wasn't conscious either. Mm. It was just that's it happened organically, and it was the people who are like, "Oh, I've got this group. Can we make? We want to make placards, or can yeah. you facilitate an evening where we do X, Y, Z, or can we show some films here?" And there was one point actually that the Arts Council wanted to make some supergroups. I mean, I mm. think it was probably a funding reason and not. Um, for artistic creative choices <laughs> and now they hadn't had a very open and transparent conversation with us about it firstly but also secondly we very much at that stage and it was before we were calling ourselves a collective we were still just to raise studios that's mm. mates yeah um but we were like we don't want to be in somewhere where there's a load of people taking themselves too seriously which yeah. and there's a time and a place for that and there are artists who need to do that but we did a lot of silly stuff as well and taking the piss <laughs> and um there's a sort of there's a bravery that you can have as a collective with humor and taking the piss and mm. provocation um that you maybe can't do as an individual but like we did really silly things like we had an exhibition of our gcse and a level art Right. <laughs> we got people to submit theirs um we had like 90s alcohol and a 90s playlist it was very funny wow that's great and you know there are some groups for good reason wouldn't want to be seen dead doing that and i understand yeah. that they've yeah. got, you know a serious gallery uh looking after them or whatever so um so there's an element of 
play that we want to keep. Yeah. And I think that we felt that we would lose, we would lose, and that you know, long before we would, we were ever, you know, we were nominated for the Gerward Collective's bursary or anything like that. So it mm. was, it was, I suppose it was again, we didn't say it at the time, but it was about trying to be true to our own values that? and who we are. Yeah. Was it a surprise then when you you were nominated for the Turner and? Oh my God, <laughs> we had no idea. We had no idea. Um, we we had done the project at Jarwood in London yeah. in 2019 and that felt really big and we were all sure. uh, yeah pleased with it but then COVID happened really soon after so that exhibition closed January 2019 I think mm. was it or was it December no it was December 2019 at shut mm. and so yeah it was. Um, so COVID was very quick on the heels. Mm. And we'd been invited to do one or two. We'd been invited to do Tulka, actually, in Galway. <laughs> right. And we'd had a chat amongst ourselves. And we're all really tired. We've so much on. There's four of us are moving house. Two of us are pregnant. Like, oh. Uh, and then literally a week after, we find out we got nominated. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, we can't really turn this one down, can we? No. Um, <laughs> They had had our, they had an old email address of ours, like an old Hotmail one that was an old <laughs> studio one. So um, they'd been trying to get hold of us for ages. And then they got my number some through someone, I can't remember who. I think it was through one of the judges. And I was listening to my voice notes right. on the loo, as you do, the only time you get to yourself. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and um, there was a voice note from Alex person who runs the Tate. Right. And I was like, this this what? So <laughs> I ran downstairs and my partner does very kind of deep engaged work with people in awful stages of grief. Mm. And I didn't want to disturb them because they were holding a very serious Zoom. But I was yeah. <laughs> like I was full of this exciting information. So I phoned him back in the corridor and we we, we were in a very small house in Belfast hmm. at the time so I'm sure you both know from working at home during COVID even oh, yeah. navigating that's tricky enough yeah. I was in the hall trying to be quiet and ex <laughs> excited at the same time <laughs> and um, I answered and I was like no, thanks very much now I can't answer on behalf of everybody but I'll I'll speak to them all and, and he said look we've been trying to get a hold of you for ages so we're really sorry but we need to know in two days time oh wow <laughs> And so oh. I was busy WhatsApping. Like we had, we used to have a text group called Arrays Assemble, which was normally for protests. <laughs> or, <laughs> and so I was texting that quick. Everybody, you have to come to Zoom in an hour's time. Get everybody, and we had almost everybody in the group. People were like, "Is the studio on fire again? Like, what's happened?" And uh, we got everybody. Toda was doing a late workshop, so she came in late, and then mm. we were all. I told everyone who couldn't believe it that we were nominated. Right. And then Stephen came in at the very end and he said we were all just grinning like Cheshire cats. He's like, what's going on? He said, we've been nominated for the Turner Prize. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> the next day on Facebook, he messaged us all and said, right, the joke's up now, lads. Like, what's actually going on? We were like, yeah. no, it's not a joke. Like, we really did. <laughs> so, yeah, to say that we were surprised is an understatement. Right. Um, And then we were delighted 
obviously mm. but then we also really felt like because of who we are and the way we work that it was that it was always going to be about more than just us that it was mm. that we felt like we were going to then be representing lots of the other artists and groups and activists that we work yeah. with and so and we knew that um because of covid it was going to be and even finances it was going to be very hard for anybody from belfast to be able to see the show yeah because mm. we didn't think that we'd win <laughs> yeah yeah. So um, uh, we, the way we wanted to do it is hold a big event for artists and activists mm. um, who are dear to us and set and do a number of um, performance art pieces and mm. songs and um, installations and get them all to dress up. And we were holding a wake for the centenary because it was the year of the centenary. Yeah. And we thought a wake was a good box container because it's, it can be joyful mm. and then it can be mournful mm. and people can be raucous and silly and tell yeah. stories. And it just, so we even had like curtains over old mirrors and we'd um, trays of ham sandwiches with tinfoil on them and <laughs> all around the place. So we, we really went to town with the wake metaphor. Um, and, and we were really restricted on the numbers because of COVID still. So we had yeah, to get a special licensed to say that we were filming and we I think we had 56 people including crew were allowed in the room and uh it was incredible it was an incredible night really incredible and yeah then we had to put the film together then we had to imagine what we were how what what are we going to show the film Mm -hmm. in and when we talked about um maybe alluding to like street bar seats you know this long seats you get outside bars Mm -hmm. that are in the street um and somehow that people could sit and watch it and maybe have one set up in Belfast and one set up we were trying to think of loads of ways and then somebody said why don't we just make a shebang and then we all worried for a while like we're talking about a bar and we're the we're the only Irish people that have been nominated for you know when was the last time (laughs) uh and then Stephen was like okay let's just go for it um so so we we went for it and we but we decided to try and really subvert that space. Mm. And, you know, we've got songs in there that are about alcohol being problematic, about being a problematic reaction to um, years of, you know, imperialism Mm. and trauma. Um, But we've also got fun songs in there and like Maniac 2000. (laughs) So it's, and and we sort of wanted people, we knew the film was going to be about half an hour. Mm. We, we, are very well versed in visiting exhibitions and we're like we need somewhere comfortable if we want anybody to sit and watch a half hour film we want them to be comfortable Mm, so true Um, yeah so we made comfortable bar snug benches yeah um and then we thought we'll use the banners as a big canopy over the space yeah and it was a circular bar and then we had a circular um installation of empty flagpoles um, one for every one of our characters. So we all developed, or most of us developed a character, and some of them were pure, purely invented from nothing, mm. and some of them were mixtures of mythology and then bringing our modern contemporary politics into it. Um, so we had our own little pantheon, and then each one of those characters was in an element. So one of the characters' um, motifs was the wallpaper, another one was the front of the bar. Uh, we had beer mats, and each character's on the beer mats. Um, little hoops for the muckdove each character had a banner and so it's sort of woven through everything 
and then it's so it's interesting that when you read lots of the reviews especially when it first opened in england they were mm. concentrating a lot on the bar itself mm. when for us we initially imagined the bar as the container for this film and a way to sit and watch yeah. the film comfortably and be ever so slightly perturbed or moved <laughs> or uh, and the, the the other thing that surprised us was we were sort of expecting it might be moving for diaspora and there's a huge Irish mm. diaspora in the Midlands, Coventry and Birmingham. Mm. Um, and that was the case, you know, so we get people tapping their feet. But then we also had people from other countries who came in who were really moved. Yeah, we were really surprised at the reaction of people who'd never set foot in the island of Ireland, who had no right. connection with the island of Ireland. Yeah. We still made some sort of connection with the work or one of the songs or um, mm. Peter reading about the fairy stories in the middle. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that was that was for me witness. And that was a huge moment. Got to ask, what where do you go next? Well, <laughs> on Friday, Array are doing an interview because we've been shortlisted for Venice to represent Ireland at the Venice Biennale. So Fantastic. it's all hands on deck this week. Get ready, <laughs> ready for that. Um, I can't go in person anymore, so I'm contributing in other ways online. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, with that, I suppose we really want to tell stories about land and our future survival, and imagine what Ireland is like would be like in the far future. Right. Yeah, because that the one in uh, Coventry was quite a lot about dealing with the past i suppose mm. um so we'll see how that goes <laughs> that sounds uh, very interesting yeah. yeah and then emma have invited us for a short residency i think in september Please. and then uh there's someone else who's possibly national museums ireland we're possibly doing something they've obviously now collectives is very um of the moment so yeah. <laughs> So they're doing a, some sort of season on, on collectives in the archive. And uh, a few of us are still trying to do our own practice as well. Although yeah. harder to fit harder to fit it all in. But um <laughs> uh yeah, I've been I have my book, the butterflies book selected for the format performing the photo book festival and was over there about a month and a half ago and uh, I'm going to be over in Peckham uh, with it sounds like a really interesting panel another woman who is uh, doing work about the passport photographs of women in Iran that have been doctored in some way right? because maybe they're not wearing the hijab properly yeah. or you know whatever so I find it's really interesting that she'll be talking about passports and, yeah. and state yeah. control of bodies as well so I can't wait for that over in London and do you know, the other thing I've been thinking about this and 10 years ago when I was describing the work, especially when we put their hands out like scales mm. or when they put their hands out like scales, um, I had to do a lot of explaining. Yeah. But I think mm. because of what's happened in Poland and America, people from everywhere get it a bit more now and nobody was interested 10 years ago, not even in England. And in the last five years, there's been a lot more interest in the subject in general. Yeah. Um, mm. Like quite often I might be the only one even saying the word abortion at a, at a conference about art, but now there's whole like, you know, there'll be whole conferences just on 
abortion and cre- creativity or there's mm-hmm. fellowships and so I yeah I think it's it's interesting to see how that's progressed and that Ireland isn't the only I mean not that we were but not the only ones making you know I'm not the only one making work about abortion in Ireland lots mm-hmm. of people have been and um it's just nice that lots of it's getting recognized now <laughs> I yeah. think that's a great note to end on thank you thank you so much for your time and uh for yeah for sharing your work with us and sharing your activism with us as well thank it's you really thanks. To, thanks a million